Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a weekly podcast to keep you up to date on what's new on our cloud platform, Microsoft Azure. Your hosts, Cynthia Crane, Evan Basilic, Suji DeMello, Kendall Roden, Kel Teeter, and Russell Young discuss a different service or solution on each show with subject matter experts to explain how to get started, how different services work, and how to make decisions in tricky scenarios. You can find out more about our podcast at azpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Azure Podcast. Today, we have two special guests on the show, John Downs and Arsen Vladimirsky. We're going to talk about uh, a very important topic for application developers that want to host uh, multi-tenanted apps in Azure and uh, what sort of architecture they should be using when they deploy these apps, when they think about developing them. We've got uh, two of the experts in the field here to discuss that with us today. Uh, but before that, as we always do, let's do a quick rundown on some of the news. And uh, I'm happy to say it's a lot of the my favorite AKS uh, Updates are currently available, so let's just talk about them. And these are actually things that I had faced uh, quite a bit uh, when I was working with AKS and deploying it with customer engagements. Uh, one of them was uh, related to custom certificate authorities. You know, it's uh, if you do if you do have one of those, it's difficult to to have that enabled when AKS is uh, booting up. You can, of course, once it boots up, you can configure your pod to use it. But before that, anything that has to happen, it's difficult to do it uh, without support from AKS. And now that support is available. So happy to see uh, that is finally out there. And then kind of related to that is also related uh, uh, the topic of uh, proxy servers. You know, a lot of uh, corporations use proxy servers, as you know. And again, the same problem right there. Uh, we've used proxy servers in AKS pods before by setting the HTTP underscore proxy environment variable, for example. And uh, but that's again after the pod has come up. If you want to do something before that, you were out of luck. Now that support is available in AKS itself, and it's uh, you just kind of configure it. Uh, I believe the certificate authority one is done on a per node pool basis, and and the HTTP proxy one I think is also done on a per node pool basis. So you know you can you can decide which node pools uh, require that level of access. So two good updates I think for AKS. A couple of other uh, updates that are worth mentioning I think. One of them is regard to static web apps. As you know, static web apps is the new way of writing SPA applications. And typically, SPA applications require uh, an API endpoint. And uh, the normal default API endpoint is to use Azure Functions. But what happens if you already have an API out there, You know, either hosted on app services or container apps or API management, for example? Now you can uh, configure static web apps. It's going to bring your own API almost. You know, So you could configure static web apps to say, hey, you know, point to these existing APIs that I already have. So I think that's, uh, that's a real nice feature for uh, customers using static web apps. And then the final, uh, the, the final, I think the final update I want to talk about today is uh, with regard to sto storage accounts. You can now create, believe it or not, 5,000 Azure storage accounts per subscription. It used to be 250, uh, but apparently all the customers are running, running up against that limit. And we're in fact creating additional subscriptions just to create more storage accounts. Uh, I'm a little unclear as to why they need so many storage accounts uh, per subscription. Maybe uh, Arsen, uh, John, you guys have some insight into this, but uh, that 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 kind of limit has now been lifted, you know, with with regards to additional storage accounts. 
Any thoughts on that one? Have you guys ever seen that with your customers? Yes, we have. <laughs> so and yeah, what's well, the typical uh, use case there? Well, there's a lot of ISVs, a lot of a lot of companies who build um, software as a service who want to deploy individual storage accounts for each of the customers that they create, right? And and so if each customer needs its own storage account, then it doesn't take that long before you get to five thousand. So that's uh, it's really nice to hear that some of these limits are being raised. Definitely ties into the topic of uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I was going to say we we did not script this. I this was completely <laughs> you know random that it just happened like that. I got to say that. <laughs> so glad that it, <laughs> it, <is> tie <laughs> it does tie into. And uh, there was one more update which I actually forgot to mention, and this is uh, regarding Cosmos DB. Uh, you know, uh, getting started with Cosmos DB, especially with the SQL API, can it can be a little challenging. Some folks wanted to spin up a Cosmos DB service to, to try it out. And there is a free tier that's been available, but you got to you know, go through some hoops to create an, an actual service that you know will be essentially permanently in your account. Uh, it'll be free for a, a limited to cap to, I think, 400 RUs or something of that nature. Uh, but what happens if you just want to spin up a Cosmos DB just to kick the tires a bit, right, and not really create it? Now you can't. There's a simpler version of the free Cosmos DB service that's available. They call it the Sandbox. and it's essentially a 30-day time-limited uh, service that's you know quickly spun up in two clicks. You get one uh, up and running. You know you could try it out, run some APIs, uh, do some programming on it, and you know later on if you say, hey, this is great, I want to uh, use Cosmos DB. It's a, it's a quick way to migrate all your data to an actual Cosmos DB instance. So again, just making the entry the bar uh, to get into there into Cosmos DB a whole lot easier. Well, I think those are all the updates that I had uh, for this week. So let's uh, turn the mic over to you, John and Arsene. Uh, please introduce yourselves. Tell us what you do at Microsoft and uh, what your passion is uh, in the Azure space. Awesome. Well, hello, everybody. My name is John Downs. Uh, I'm an engineer in the Fast Track for Azure team. Um, I'm based in Auckland in New Zealand. And um, so I work with a lot of different types of Azure customers, um, uh, ISVs, independent software vendors, who we'll be talking more about shortly, um, as well as kind of enterprises, government customers, and, and a bunch of others as well. Um, I, I focus predominantly on the app development space. So I'm a developer uh, originally, but um, don't write a huge amount of code these days. Um, and uh, and I've, I've got a real interest in um, a few particular areas of solution architecture, multi-tenancy being one of them. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun to talk about this today. And my name is uh, Arsene Vladimirsky. I'm part of Fast Track for Azure ISV focus team, so colleague of John, uh, working primarily or exclusively with ISVs and startups and other companies building solutions on top of Azure Cloud or bringing existing solutions to Azure Cloud from other environments, uh, either hosted in their own data centers or in other clouds. And uh, my primary focus is on uh, providing architectural guidance and best practices and discussing architectural trade-offs when they are trying to make decisions on how to architect the solution, how to properly organize their resources, how to properly put the building blocks that Azure provides together into a, a solution. And most of the time, these solutions are multi-tenant. And I think we'll probably touch on what that means versus single-tenant, et cetera. So thank you for yeah. having me. Oh, please. Uh, thank you very much, Paul, for coming on. And I want to just, uh, you know, let's talk about the, the big elephant in the room here. What exactly makes an application multi-tenanted? Like, what's the, I've heard that, of course, we've all heard the term, I'm sure, 
but what uh, how do you think about a multi-tenanted application when a customer starts talking about it and john maybe you could start in our simply chairman Sure, yeah. So multi-tenancy, or when we think about tenants, often we're talking about customers of of you, right? So if you're an if you're a, a, a software vendor who's creating a, a software as a service system, for example, you will have your own customers, and probably each of those customers has their own requirements around keeping their data separate from each other. Um, they want to kind of have the illusion that they're the only ones who are using your system at, at any given time. They don't want to see other people's data mixed up with theirs. So we, we consider each of those to be tenants. Um, now, the, the lines get a little bit blurry sometimes because let's take, for example, a music streaming service, right? If, you, if, we, if you're building a, a large global music streaming service, then it could be that all of your customers become tenants, but then you can have complex scenarios where, for example, a family might share a billing account and they might have, there might be some sort of concept where they can share playlists or there's some other data sharing that happens between those customers as well. So the way that you define a tenant will be different for every different scenario. But broadly speaking, we we break up kind of these, these um, the SaaS world into B2B and B2C. So B2B being business to business, in which case, you know, I'm selling an accounting system to a whole bunch of other customers. Each of those customers is probably a tenant. Um, and then B2C being business to consumer. And so I'm selling a, a, a product or a service that's going to be accessible to, to individual people and maybe to things like families and so forth. So it can get a little bit... Um, tricky to define exactly what a tenant is for everybody. But usually once you start really understanding your business, you can figure out where, where to draw those lines. And I'd also say there's there's another angle on multi-tenancy that we also think about as well, which is beyond just SaaS vendors, beyond just ISVs, there are actually some scenarios where enterprise customers uh, of Microsoft um, can also be considered to be hosting multi-tenant solutions. So a really good example of this is if you're in a big corporate organization, for example, you probably have some central teams that manage things like Kubernetes clusters or uh, virtual networks or other, other kind of shared resources. And you can think of those resources as being multi-tenant because there are a bunch of different teams that all run their workloads on those resources. They all need to kind of interact together and, and um, but, but kind of coexist together peacefully. Um, and so that's another form of multi-tenancy that we also consider. Yeah, and just to add a couple of points to John's great description is sometimes if you think of a software as a service, you know, solution out there, usually it is always multi-tenant because it always has multiple customers uh, and customers could be an organization or a family or some group of users, not one user, but a grouping of those users. It doesn't mean that the application code is aware of all of these tenants. It's possible that that software vendor deploys multiple copies of the same application and takes care of managing it all through a single pane of glass of some sort. So the solution, I like sometimes to distinguish between solution and an application. Solution is multi-tenant and given application instance could be unaware that it is part of a bigger system, uh, but overall it's a multi-tenant solution. So, and that is sometimes the word multi-tenancy is overloaded in many places. Uh, as we may touch on in terms of Azure Active Directory, we use the word multi-tenant to describe a very specific feature or property of an application registration that says it's an application registration that could be used by your tenant and another tenant. What we, when we talk about this specific guidance, we are talking on a higher level, not specific to Azure Active Directory, not to specific to any specific service, but more there is a solution that has potentially completely separate 
tenants that need to be isolated from each other, but they're managed together by the solution provider. I got to say, I never thought that things like virtual networks and uh, other uh, Azure resources would also be considered uh, multi-tenant. Uh, that's uh, that's definitely eye-opening for me. Uh, so as an architect, as someone who's designing a solution, let's say we're working with uh, a customer or the customer is working with their internal teams to build a solution and they wish to make it multi-tenant in some way, uh, you know, it looks like there's a lot of things that they have to consider to to get going. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, what's the kind of baby steps that they should take uh, to, to, to make sure they don't, uh, you know, get too confused like like I'm almost getting right now? <laughs> Yeah, well, there's there's actually we, when we think about this, we've kind of broken it into into I guess three different stages or three different kind of areas of concern. So the first area is really high level concerns around kind of your multi tenancy strategy, I guess, and and we'll touch on that in a second. Um, then when you actually start implementing or start really getting into the the nitty gritty of your solution architecture, there's there's some particular concerns you're going to have around how you configure resources, how you deploy resources, and so forth, um, and, and some of the, some of the properties of different Azure resources that affect that. Uh, and then we also have, um, uh, you know, when you're actually implementing these, these individual resources one by one, there's often different configuration settings or different ways that you can configure resources as well. So we break it into these kind of three stages. Thinking about the, the, that first one, that the kind of the high level concerns, that's something that we we think, you know, that this is, this is an area where if you're in a startup or, a, or an ISV, you know, chief technology officers, um, solution architects, product managers, they're going to need to start thinking about a whole range of different um, concerns here. So one of the big ones, for example, is how are you making money, right? How is the system going to make money? Because the way that you price your system and the way that you bill um, actually has a pretty significant impact on your architecture. Um, we also want to think about things like how much isolation do you need between tenants, right? If you're building, for example, a, an accounting system that's going to be used by banks, then they are going to have very, very stringent requirements around having their databases and all their data completely separated. Whereas, again, in a music streaming context, then that's probably not a big concern, right? So understanding the, the requirements that your customers have and, and, um, and what's reasonable and, and what's not. Um, is really important and, and you kind of have to design your whole architecture based on a lot of those requirements. Um, and then we start thinking about things like, um, uh, are you going to be bringing along things like custom domain names or like are you going to allow your, your individual tenants to bring their own domain names, which actually quite a few um, software as a service vendors do. Um, and if so, there's a whole bunch of concerns you need to think about there as well. And um, how are you going to allocate your Azure costs and, and all of your other costs to different tenants? Um, do you even need to do that? Which again, gets back to your pricing model, right? Maybe you don't care particularly how much one tenant is costing you, or maybe you do. So having a starting with a really, really good understanding of your business and your your customers' business and customers' requirements is, is probably the, the first step. Um, and that's where we often see a lot of customers really struggle is, is they, they kind of jump straight to the solution implementation without really thinking through those initial steps and then have to go back and retrofit a whole lot of things later, which can often be quite complex. Um, Arsene, did you want to add to that? Yeah, just to add a couple of points. Um, you know, so we, we break the guidance in the architecture center, we actually have a specific section there, which we can link to later, um, that breaks this guidance into consumable, you know, series of articles, so to speak. It starts with what John described, the considerations. What are the 
requirements or the questions you should ask yourself before solutioning around the architecture. What are your requirements? And if the requirements are such that you do not need, for example, complete separation between tenants, then you may not need to, to worry about some of the specific complexities that come with it. But if you know that you do need, for example, let's just take an example um, that's very simple that Let's say you need geogra geography collocation of, of data of your customers. Some customers of, of your solution will be based in Europe and some may will be based in US and they want their data to stay where they are, right? So knowing that from the beginning allows you to properly design uh, your approach. And what we do in that consideration section is we enumerate a bunch of questions that are things that people often forget to ask themselves, but are good to ask. So they may look at like an overwhelming set of questions to think about, but the point is that it's good to know that they exist and you may just put a pin in it and say, well, this doesn't apply to me right now. I'm not going to over-engineer and over-architect something today, but at least I know I made the decision consciously. And if I'm not going to have a million tenants, I don't need to worry about this limit, for example, like the storage account limit we talked about. I may, I may be okay with that. So I think it's the the guidance and starting with the business requirements and mapping them to some questions to ask your product managers and your business folks and together come up with what is uh, what is defining the solution. And actually, one thing I'll just add to that as well is, is understanding things like your company's growth plans is a really important aspect of this too, right? And it's it's often surprising to me when I when I kind of review architectures from 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 different um, uh, different SaaS vendors, and they don't the people that I'm talking to, the solution architects, don't necessarily understand what the company's growth plans are or what the timelines are. And and if we're even just taking it back to the storage account example, right? As Arsene said, if you need to deploy individual storage accounts for every tenant, then the you need to to know are you ever going to get to 5,000 tenants and and if so is that going to happen this year or is it going to happen in 10 years time um, because then you need to plan all of the necessary automation and, and resource organization based on that so this all it, it all kind of plays together in a really interesting way so uh, once we get all that information uh, captured where does that take us where does that take the customer like what uh, what uh, artifact or, or what design will come out of that or what are the possible designs that might come out of that uh, step well we usually will start with trying to get a an architecture diagram together right so that's that's for us that's the thing that we will review it's the thing that that we can kind of have a conversation around and the biggest thing for me when i'm looking at a multi-tenant architectural diagram is to understand which components are going to be shared and which components are going to be tenant specific now there's a really um, common design pattern that we've uh, that we see called the deployment stamps pattern the deployment stamps pattern basically says that you can take um, a complete solution or a complete set of resources and when you want to scale you just take that exact same set of resources and stamp them out again and this is a really useful way to scale um, across geographic boundaries because you can create you know one stamp in, in say the us another stamp in australia it's also a really good way to scale if you've got components that have some limits around them, right? You know that you're only going to be able to have a certain number of, of requests per second or a certain amount of data or whatever in, in a particular component. Um, rather than trying to work around that, you can just basically say, we're going to take the entire thing and just stamp it out again. And then we can say, you know, tenants one through 100 go on, on stamp A, tenants 101 through 200 go on stamp B. Uh, and then as we get more and more tenants, we can keep stamping those out. So thinking about, you know, all those different things around which components are going to sit within the stamp if you are using the stamp pattern 
um, uh, within the stamp, you, you still might have shared components as well as dedicated components. So understanding all of those. Um, and I think the big thing that we really think about as well is that Azure has a lot of um, kind of limits and quotas and so forth that can actually make a big difference when you're designing multi-tenant solutions. The, the storage account limit is a, is a good example of that, right? We, it's obviously one we've raised, but there are plenty of other things that are similar that, that are not currently being raised. Um, so understanding kind of the, the boundary in which the, the box in which you've got to expand and then planning for what you're going to do when you hit that point. Um, and again, that might be scaling out to another stamp. It might be, you know, creating more subscriptions. It might be, you know, there's a whole bunch of different techniques you've got available to you. And uh, if I may, this deployment stamp pattern that uh, we talk about and we describe, it applies, I think, in, in most high-scale um, multi-tenant solutions out there. And the idea is that uh, many times uh, the application may be aware that it has multiple tenants. Maybe there is a tenant ID property that's passed around right in every request tenant context. So this, uh, but a given resource eventually will have some limit, whatever that limit. It may be very high limit or a given geographic location needs to be different. So resource cannot coexist. So thinking right away in a deployment stamp approach, like here's my code, here's the infrastructure I need to run my code, whatever it may be. It may be infrastructure, it may be past services. And what happens when I fill that up to capacity? Do I build the next one? And being able to do that from day one, if if it is required, again, uh, uh, thinking about the, how many tenants will ever be in my solution is important. If I know it's only going to be 50 very large banks, maybe I will just give them each individual stamps and that will be uh, my architecture. But if I know I need to share maybe a free trial environment that I need to share among multiple customers, uh, then being able to, to, to approach it from a deployment stamp perspective from the one uh, allows for growth and allows for it to be, uh, you know, when needed to be scaled to the next deployment stamp and the next deployment stamp. So in some of the documentation pages that you'll see some diagrams, they describe the spectrum of tenancy models. Some things could be shared, like Jen said, and some things could be dedicated. And sometimes in the same solution, there could be a mixture of both. An individual database per customer, but maybe a shared web web tier. For example, sometimes we see that happen, right? Uh, uh, and that allows, for example, why would you do so as an example? Let's say you needed separate encryption keys for each database and the database encryption can only happen on a database level, not at the table level. So the guidance tries to take you through those steps one by one. And 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 then as, as you're going from the levels that are higher considerations, then we talk about approaches and common patterns that we see uh, in different tiers of your service. And we can talk about, about that uh, as well. Compute, networking, storage, uh, and data pieces. That's good, yeah, because I was, I was just about to ask you, you know, obviously you could have a number of small stamps or fewer large stamps, right? Uh, and I'm wondering if there's any uh, any guidance or any, uh, you know, any, any way customers should think about selecting one approach or the other. Yeah, I mean, there's. It, 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 we've certainly seen both approaches work, right? And and I think understanding your um, your scaling strategy, especially around geographic scaling, is is the starting point for that. Because if you know, for example, that you're going to to be scaling across multiple separate geographic regions, then you want to plan for the. You, you're going to have a certain number of stamps based on just the number of regions you're going to expand to. 
Another consideration is, for example, if you've got tenants who are coming to to onto your solution that have compliance requirements that they need to meet, um, or they have some sort of high security kind of um, uh, requirements they need to meet, maybe they will need to get their own miniature stamps, right? And um, or miniature or bug, big depending on the customer. Um, so maybe you need to plan for that as well. Um, I, I think there's, you know, within Azure, we use the deployment stamp pattern a lot for handling our multi-tenant services. So, you know, we've actually got some documentation talking about how app service and I think Azure Storage and some other services are built on the same kind of approach um, where we we can scale, you know, across multiple stamps. And and those stamps can become very large, right? Um, but but ultimately, by having all these individual stamps, you can do a whole bunch of interesting things like, for example, rolling out updates progressively. So if you've got 30 stamps of your solution across the world, um, when you when you need to update your solution or your, your application code, you can update stamps, you know, stamp one, wait for a little bit and see if anything breaks, if any customers yell, and then move on to stamp two, three, four, and so forth. And that's exactly what we do with progressive updates for Azure as well. Um, so there's some benefit to having more more stamps uh, from that perspective, but of course it increases your your management costs. It increases the complexity of the solution, um, and so it is something that you want to really understand. You know, for your requirements, what's going to make the most sense? Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's that uh, that trade-off of uh, too many stamps for just manageability complexity. But in every case, for a large uh, solution that will have multiple stamps, automation obviously is a key. DevOps and uh, automation and like John mentioned this uh, safe deployment process we call it right in Azure we can see some some blog posts describing how we do it releasing to canary stamps first releasing to wider stamps and then releasing to all of them so having that trade-off uh, between the size of the stamp and how many you want is is an important one but probably not in hundreds unless you are really, really large. In low digit numbers is usually where, where people start. Usually a good idea to start with more than one uh, mm -hmm. to avoid hard coding problems, uh, making assumptions in your architecture that you only have one stamp and everything is hard coded uh, with one subscription ID, for example. And therefore now, if you want to have two stamps, it's a big effort to fix versus starting with N and N could be two or three or four, whatever the number is, being able to right away from day one, have the architecture follow, follow that and uh, be ready for five and six. And I think the other thing to think about there as well is how do you route traffic into those stamps, right? If mm -hmm. you've got I was about a whole to bunch ask of, you that. Right, okay, cool, yeah. Um, yeah, if you've got a whole bunch of, of HTTP requests, for example, for APIs or for web applications or whatever, or coming in, how do you know which stamp to go to? And then within the stamp, how do they know, you know which, which application uh, instance to go to or, or whatever the case may be? Um, and, and that can actually be quite a complex thing to just just solve that routing problem, right? That that actually can can also be uh, be tricky, and and again, it depends on your customers' expectations too. Because if you if your customers want to bring their own domain names, um, and and use for example, you know, uh, contoso.com or you know xyz.contoso.com is the entry point they use to get into your application, uh, whereas xyz.fabricam.com will will go to Fabricam's instance of your application. Um, that that actually makes it potentially quite easy because then something like Azure Front Door or another uh, reverse proxy um, can, can basically look at the request that's coming in 
look at the the host header, the, the you know where it's being sent, and then it knows. Well, Contoso is on stamp two over here, Fabricam is on stamp five over here, and route the requests. But if you've got everybody coming in through one entry point, it's they're all going through you know mysasapplication.com, um, then then it can get more complex, and you might even need to have um, a kind of an intelligent routing tier that can actually look at the request coming in, look at the tenant that's that's being authenticated, and 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 route them to the necessary uh, stamp that way, and and that can actually be quite a, a lot of implementation as well, um, depending on the approach you use. So again, understanding how you're going to do all of that, and and probably the the biggest thing for me is understanding what commitments your sales team are making um, to customers, right? Because if they're telling customers you're going to going to it's going to work in this way, you need your architecture to be able to actually support that, and you need to know how you're going to do that. And, and what's yeah. nice about the, the guidance is that we try to enumerate in writing uh, some of those common patterns. So if you are curious, let's say, how what are some of the existing patterns of doing this, there's a section called mapping requests to tenants under multi-tenancy consideration that kind of enumerates domain names, URL properties, headers, API keys, et cetera. So you don't have to memorize this. You can go through and see some of the options and then decide, hmm, I was thinking this one, it's not on the list. Maybe it's the wrong one to use, or maybe the documentation needs to be updated and you can submit us a suggestion to include a pattern that we might have not included. Yeah, I was I was thinking, almost thinking like we'd have to come up with some sort of deterministic hash algorithm or something like that, right? Which will look at some properties of the input and see, okay, this one always goes here, that one always goes there. Uh, because I wonder how uh, the uh, stamps are selected to start with, right? That's another challenge uh, when a new customer comes on board. Is that a manual process where someone says, oh, you know, this stamp looks like it's not being used or that stamp the, uh, has the right, uh, you know, properties or uh, loca locations for this customer? What's the strategy for onboarding there? Well, that's a really good point. And that actually gets to a, probably I'd, I'd even raise it up one level and say, the lifecycle management of tenants is actually what we think about, right? It's onboarding is, is one very important part of that, but you've also got to think about offboarding and you've also got to think about um, what happens if two tenants, for example, if their businesses, what happens if they merge, right? Um, and you need to merge all of their data, maybe, or, or maybe you don't. Um, or if you've got, a, if your tenants are families, like we talked about before, what happens if somebody leaves the family or joins the family? You've got all these different kind of lifecycle events that happen. Um, one of the things that we 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 certainly try to, to in the guidance we try to to clear to clearly explain all those different events and and the kinds of things you can consider, but of course there's no one right approach for everybody and it could well be that you look at a lot of this and say that's just not something that we're going to worry about or we don't we we, we just are choosing not to implement any kind of um, system based approach for this it's something we'll deal with if and when it happens, but I think tenant onboarding is one one particular area where it is worth thinking that through, um, and broadly speaking I mean you you've essentially got two options. You've got either manual onboarding or automated onboarding. Um, so manual onboarding would be um, somebody, for example, talks to your sales team and your sales team then initiates a process which might result in you, know, you deploying some extra databases and infrastructure and whatever to support a new tenant. We would still suggest that you automate as much of that as you can, but the, the process is initiated from a, a kind of a manual um, a manual process. Um, but then if you want to fully automate the entire thing, um, then you've got to think about, you know, how is, how is somebody going to actually make that request? Is it self-service requests? Is it, is it um, are they going through some sort of CRM or, or web portal? Um, how is that happening? 
Um, and and also for figuring out, for example, if you if you are using the stamp approach and you've got a whole bunch of different stamps, like you said, which stamp are you going to put them on? How do you decide which um, is it based on geographic region? What happens if you've got multiple stamps in a region and one of them is nearly full and the other one isn't? Um, you know those kinds of concerns too. And I'd also um, just coming back to one of the things you mentioned before, Sajid, about deterministic hashes. That's actually something that I generally try and. Um, uh, caution away from because deterministic, deterministic hashing algorithms, for, certainly for routing between stamps, um, don't really take account of the fact that you've got stateful systems behind the scenes, right? Um, if you've got um, if you've got two different stamps, and uh, you know today you've got two different stamps, and and stamp one has or stamp A has tenants one through ten, stamp B has tenants eleven through twenty. You might be able to come up with a, a hashing algorithm that that works today while you've got two stamps, but then when you when you add stamp number three, that hashing algorithm suddenly gives everybody different uh, different hashes, right? And now you're, you're routing tenants to data to to you know to stamps and therefore to databases that they aren't actually using. So um, really thinking through the the kind of the the full request chain and the full um, the full process of of both onboarding and routing is really important. Just to add Good one point, little yeah. point to, to the stamp selection, there is a concept of, of the pricing model that John mentioned, connect back to tier of service that a tenant or a customer may be purchasing. Oftentimes it's in play in these types of uh, multi-tenant solutions, premium tier or standard or basic or whatever the names are, gold, platinum, right? So depending on the tier that the customer selected, that may influence, it's either one of these five stamps or this you know shared stamp or this dedicated stamp for example so some of these things come into play so the, again the idea is that there is a lot of considerations and a lot of potentials and again in guidance we try to kind of cover what it would take to build like cloud scale hyperscale SaaS solution but not every not every solution to take all of that under consideration and actually implement it but sometimes the knowing that this is what's in play makes the implementation more pragmatic, even in the short term. So basically, you may only have start with, like we said, two stamps and never go beyond that. And then the decision is very simple uh, or, or it may need to build some of that programmatic logic in there as well. Yes, that's a good point. Thank you. So, you know, I was thinking, like, if we come down now to the actual building of the solution, the software, right? We're all developers, as we say, and we want to eventually get to the solution. Uh, you know, after hearing all of you uh, talk, I have, a, you know, I, I kind of have it in my head that every application will ultimately at some point become multi-tenanted. Is that like a fair statement to make any, any like, is, can you think of a scenario where an application will never, ever be multi-tenanted? I mean, certainly a lot of enterprise applications and, and e-commerce and those kinds of things. I don't right. quite fit I guess into the multi-tenant. I suppose you're right. Yeah. But yeah, I meant like yeah. if, if you're putting out like a web app, yeah. I think SaaS applications tend to be multi-tenant, right? And and as Arsen said, we, we take a broad view of multi-tenancy. We, we, it could be that every tenant gets their own independent instance and their own independent deployment, um, but you're sharing the same code, you're sharing the same deployment scripts and so forth. And so we think of those as multi-tenant as well. Um, so yeah, if you expand it that way, I think that is probably pretty and, accurate. And the, re and the reason I'm asking is, you know, as you know, it's, it's obviously a lot simpler to build an application that's not multi-tenanted than it is to put in any smart form multi-tenancy, right? I mean, we're talking a lot of additional engineering cycles to make it multi-tenanted. And so it's easy for customers to say, hey, you know, hey, we're gonna build a system just for one tenant. We're gonna have, you know, millions of customers on it. Uh, they're gonna be all end users and that's gonna be it, right? Uh, and, mm -hmm. and if, hey, tomorrow if, uh, 
we just do decide to uh, to sell this to other customers. We'll just make what use the stamp model or something, you know, make it completely like every every. I think Arsene said it earlier on, where every uh, every stamp can be completely unaware of the other stamp, right? You could you could go that route. So should you know how should the, the, you be thinking when you build these applications? Should you have, know it in the back of your mind that hey, I can eventually misuse the stamp architecture for my application, or should I be thinking about uh, building uh, multi-tenancy smarts into my application from the get-go? Well, you certainly can over-engineer, right? And and we definitely caution against over-engineering, especially when you're in the early stages, when you're trying to get something, you know, like an MVP out and get it into market and trying to, to get some real customers and, and get some momentum. You don't want to be spending all of your time building up, you know, automation scripts for self-service onboarding if you don't need them, right? That's the, We're certainly not suggesting that. Um, but we're also saying as you approach a certain point, then the benefits of having multi-tenanted application tiers or databases or storage accounts or whatever start to become more significant because apart from anything else, it's going to reduce your cost, right? That's one of the big reasons why a multi-tenant solution is is advisable for, for many of these kinds of scenarios, right? If you imagine, if you imagine you're, you're building a, a, a multi-tenant business-to-business solution um, and you've got 10,000 customers and growing, um, if you're stamping out a completely new instance of your solution for every customer that comes along, your Azure bill is going to get pretty high pretty quickly. Um, and, and so that's going to inhibit your growth. It's going to inhibit your your company's um, ability to scale. So at a certain point, there's there's a, a point at which you reach, you know, it's it's it, you cross a threshold where multi-tenancy is, is not just uh, good, it's actually essential. Um, and, and so figuring out where that point is obviously is different for every customer. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that that's probably the biggest thing for us is just understanding, again, what your growth plans are and so forth. But but once you've done that, then yes, you you can decide, if you consciously decide right now, we're not going to make this a multi-tenanted solution, um, but we might in the future. Um, you know, we're going to, and when we have customers who do this, right, they say, well, we, for, the, for the foreseeable future, we're going to have a relatively small number of tenants, so we're just going to give them each independent, independent stamps. But then they start to do their projections and realize actually this is going to grow quite a lot. I'm actually working with a customer right now who's doing this. Um, You don't want to paint yourself into a corner where that's going to become very challenging later. And so things like, I mean, Arsene mentioned things like flowing through the tenant context um, through your application tier and 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 into your data tier um, that's that's a really simple thing that you can do right from the start even if you if you've only got one tenant um, to start with or you're you're a single tenant kind of application um, you can there's no harm in flowing a tenant ID all the way through the tenant ID might just always be one right but then when tenant ID becomes two or three or four then then you've suddenly your, your application tier is able to handle that um, and so not hard coding those kinds of assumptions um, and and allowing for things like tenants ID tenant IDs to be included in, you know, requests or, or tokens or whatever the case may be. Excellent point. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, this has been a, a really good uh, discussion on multi-tenancy ap- applications on architectures on Azure. And um, I think a, a lot of my questions for sure were definitely answered. I'm a l- I feel I'm a little more uh, better educated now on on how to build these things on Azure. So thanks for all the all the insights over there. Uh, you mentioned that, Arsene, I think you mentioned there's the Architecture Center that has a lot of guidance over here. Does that also cover guidance for application developers? Uh, does it go down to that level where like, it talks about some of these things about flowing the context and, uh, and, and how you handle that in your code and things like that? Yes, it, in, the, in the consideration section, it gives the considerations. Approaches section dives into 
approaches for different tiers and flowing the context and, and such. And then we get into service specific guidance as well. So if you're using service, let's say Cosmos DB, what are the proper features or best features to use for multi-tenancy, how to, to model your data. For example, if you're using uh, cognitive search, what are the approaches? So we don't enumerate every ser service in Azure. Uh, at the moment, it's maybe eight, nine or so in there, but we add services to that guidance with the features that are most relevant for multi-tenant um, capabilities to use. So uh, absolutely. So best place to start would be, you know, at that short link is AKA, MS slash multi-tenancy um, and in that series of articles a lot of that is described awesome well thanks again for that great discussion and uh, we'll uh, hope to get you guys on the show again sometime in the future when we have uh, maybe an update to this uh, guidance or some other topic for that matter it's good having you on here thank you Sajid. thank you very much yeah. thank you Sajid. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any thoughts, questions, or just want to connect, find us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the Creative Commons license. We hope you'll tune in again soon to keep learning with us.